Welcome to the Association of Insurance Compliance Professionals podcast. AICP serves the insurance compliance community by promoting relationships, exchanging information, and providing learning opportunities within a dynamic regulatory environment. Today's topic is underwriting with your host, Aaron Burke of Westmont Associates. We are excited to welcome today's guests, Lee Davidson and Dominic Saratore. Lee Davidson joined Berkeley Accident and Health in 2010 and is currently the Senior Vice President of Traditional Stop Loss. At Berkeley, Lee has responsibility for the P&L of the Traditional Stop Loss segment, which includes sales, underwriting, account servicing, and claims. Lee has more than 35 years of insurance industry experience in a variety of product lines and roles within an insurance company. Prior to joining Berkeley, Lee was Vice President and Chief Compliance Officer for the Hanover Insurance Group. Lee has also served in various roles within the AICP, including National President. Dominic Saratore has worked in the insurance industry for 30 years with a concentration in compliance during the last 18 years. Prior to joining Westmont, Dominic served as the Global Chief Compliance Officer for Ironshore, where he managed corporate compliance and regulatory requirements on a global basis. Prior to his tenure at Ironshore, Dominic was Director of Internal Controls at Sun Life Financial, where his responsibilities included Sarbanes-Oxley Review, Processing, and Testing. He also held the position of Compliance Director at Lexington Insurance Company, where Dominic was responsible for excess and surplus lines compliance. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Erin Burke. I'll be the moderator for today's podcast. Um, just a short background on myself. I am a project manager at Westmont Associates. They are a insurance compliance consulting firm, um, and I've been there for just over five years where I handle property and casualty form rate and rule filings, as well as agent and adjuster uh, licensing compliance matters. Um, so with that, let's get started. Um, I want to first uh, start off by thanking um, Lee Davidson and Dominic Serator for uh, joining us today. Um, and today's the subject of today's podcast is going to be underwriting. Um, so the world of underwriting is a highly regulated and monitored um, area of insurance. It's essential to consumer protection and it requires compliance with laws and regulations in, in all the states and D.C. Um, it involves insurance companies performing periodic examinations of their producers, their third-party administrators, their managing general agents, um, and the goal is to review their conformity with underwriting guidelines and state requirements, and also to know the repercussions um, that uh, could come from an insurance department examination that perhaps finds non-compliance with those um, laws and regulations. Um, so this podcast will examine the regulations governing the underwriting of policies, the types of proactive measures that um, insurance companies can take to ensure compliance, and then some of the difficulties faced by companies that fail to ensure compliance. Um, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to our speakers um, for just a brief introduction. Uh, Lee, did you want to start us off by uh, just giving us a brief background about yourself? Well, thanks, Aaron, and hi, Dominic. Uh, you know, happy to join this uh, most recent podcast on underwriting. I've uh, been in this business for 36 years in the insurance business, working for various companies and lines of business. I currently uh, am employed at Berkeley, and I run a uh, segment of uh, of business, including you know sales, underwriting, uh, account management, uh, claims, etc. Great. Thanks so much, Lee. And Dominic, a little bit of background about yourself. 
Um, sure. Thanks, Aaron. And uh, Lee, thank you very much as well. Um, thank you to the AICP for actually allowing us to to record this. Um, just a quick background from me. Just like Lee, I have 30 plus years in insurance experience um, running across the gamut. At the moment, I am the Senior Regulatory Compliance Consultant for Westmont Associates. Uh, but I've also been a chief compliance officer for iInsure Insurance uh, Group, which was a startup insurance company that was actually acquired um, after about 10 years. And um, I've, I've got about 20 plus years of compliance experience. So therefore, it's great to be able to um, to impart some of that knowledge to all of you. I look forward. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dominic. Definitely looking forward to a great podcast with all the uh, the knowledge that you guys can pass forward. Um, so today's discussion um, is going to be broken into four sections to help everyone understand underwriting a little bit better. Um, the questions that we're hoping to get answers to are first, what is underwriting? Second, um, are you an underwriter or a producer and what's the difference? Um, and it, with that, what kind of licensing requirements um, should be considered? Uh, the third uh, section we're going to talk about is automation versus human evaluation and underwriting, um, things like declining a risk and new business versus renewal. And then lastly, I like to go into uh, beyond the underwriting. What are the underwriting requirements, regulatory or otherwise, um, that are required prior to placing a risk and after the risk has been placed? Um, so, Lee, did you want to start us off by uh, explaining a little bit about what is underwriting? Sure. Thank you, Aaron. And so, um, you know, underwriting is probably one of the oldest occupations in the insurance business. When you think back when insurance started uh, back in the days when trade was uh, was really handled over the sea, uh, that's when really insurance became a thing and underwriters were key. They evaluate risk and they set pricing for a risk and decide, you know, what what's acceptable is this an acceptable risk? Should I insure it? And at what price can I insure it for? And it's really, when you think about, you know, underwriting, you can apply it. So we're, we're here to talk about insurance underwriting, but you can apply it to banking or other uh, businesses. When you think of somebody who applies for an auto loan, a uh, homeowner's loan, um, there's an underwriter there at that bank that says, okay, who is this risk? And what interest rate should I charge them? And so insurance is the same in that you have an actuary, the science, what I call the science of underwriting, where they actually use the math and the science to set the manual, the pricing, but then they have an underwriter. That's the art, right? The art of underwriting. And they actually use their experience, their expertise. They review the data they have on a particular risk and they make a decision. Should I quote this risk? Should I decline it? And if I am going to quote it, does it fit within my risk profile and what price should I and can I charge for that particular risk? It's really what it is. It's all it is. That's really interesting. I like that you, uh, you describe it as an art. Um, I think that's that's pretty accurate. Uh, Dominic, did you want to add anything to that? Um, no, I think as, um, as Lee pointed out, I think underwriting has been with us since the very, very beginning dawn of time. I think Lloyd started back in the 1700s, which was probably the first um, insurance company or group of insurance companies back out there. So um, underwriting is definitely an art form um, and it's definitely something which, um, you know, it's not just a one person job, but usually uh, the risk is reviewed by one underwriter and then it's um, moved over to a second underwriter to ensure that the you know that that's a risk 
the risk that they want to take. Um, and then they uh, move it on from there and, and determine whether they actually want to accept the risk or decline the risk. That's interesting that it goes through multiple levels like that. So the next um, next subject that we were going to go over was uh, whether, you know, when, when looking at the different types of, of, of careers, whether you're classified as an underwriter or a producer or an agent, um, and, and what's the difference between those two things. And, and further, you know, what type of, of licenses would you be required to hold for either an underwriter or a producer? So, uh, Dominica, did you want to lead off on that one? Absolutely, yeah. Thank you, Aaron. Um, so the term underwriter is used extremely loosely in the in the insurance industry, and um, and as Lee pointed out, the underwriter is a person that uh, that will actually evaluate the risk. Um, the problem, which is found from a regulatory perspective, is that an underwriter is only employed by an insurance company. So if you are uh, employed by an insurance company and you're writing the risk um, on behalf of the insurance company, you're evaluating the risk, you're writing the risk on behalf of the insurance company, then you are considered an underwriter. Um, and an underwriter, um, which is employed by an insurance company, does not need to actually have any kind of specific licenses. Clearly, they need to have their training, they need to be aware of uh, the risk that they're looking at, they need to be able to read the pricing manuals which are put together by the actuaries. Um, however, they do do not need to do any kind of specific um, specific licensing uh, in order to be an underwriter. Now, when we move over to producer agent, that's a different story. If you look at the job conducted by a producer and agent, yes, it is an underwriting position. They basically effectively do the same thing as what an underwriter would do for an insurance company. However, because they are working for an agency, um, or for a group of agencies, they are no longer an underwriter because, as I stated previously, uh, an underwriter only works for an insurance company. So, therefore, if you're going to become a producer or an agent, then not only do you have to learn the underwriting uh, laws as well, you also need to be licensed um, in the states which which you're going to be uh, writing the business. So, take let's take property casualty for a minute. If you want to write um, on the East Coast, so you want to write from New Hampshire down to New York, and you're going to be writing um, auto insurance as as an agent, you actually need to have a property casualty license in those states. So what you would typically do is you'd get a license in your home state. Um, let's take, for example, your home state is New York. You'd get a license in your home state, so that would be your home license. Then you'd get a non-resident license um, in the other states that that you actually want to write the business. If, you, if you're not actually licensed, you can't bind the business. Now, there's nothing stopping an agency from having one master producer, which has the licenses, um, and, and the master producer then has some agents working underneath them. So the agent can obviously review the risk, the agent can price the risk, but if the agent is not licensed, the agent cannot bind the risk on behalf of any insurance company. So once again, you are, you are still an underwriter um, in the in the best sense of the terms, however, you um, you can't call yourself an underwriter, and you actually do need to be licensed in all the states that you're writing business. Now, again, there are various forms of licensing. Um, clearly, there is the basic. There's the property casual licenses. There's the health licenses, um, and there's also the life insurance licenses, which includes the annuity licenses. So, everyone, a lot of people know about those. What a lot of people don't know, which is very unique in the United States, is that we also have 
the excess and surplus lines um, part of the insurance industry. So therefore, if a rest does, cannot be placed uh, with a regular insurance company um, and it's a unique type risk, then what will happen is is that the agent will have to try and place a risk with an excess and surplus lines insurance company. Now, while an excess insurance and surplus lines insurance company is not licensed, it is recognized by the states as an excess and surplus lines insurance company. The agent or producer would actually need to have an excess and surplus lines license in the state that they're actually riding in in order to, to procure that risk. And um, we will I'll go through that a little bit further on in the podcast with regards to what are the requirements. However, it's, um, again, I just want to reiterate, it's very important to remember that an underwriter only works for an insurance company. Um, an underwriter cannot work for an insurance agency. Um, if, you're, if you're working for an insurance agency, you're not an underwriter. You are a producer. You can be called a production specialist. You can be called a production executive, a production manager, however, not an underwriter. Um, so that uh, is uh, makes it clear. And just one one other point before I uh, pass it back over to Aaron. A lot of insurance groups now actually have their own agencies as part have agencies as part of the actual group. So you might have a group that has two insurance companies and an agency, and you will have um, underwriters employed by the insurance company and underwriters employed by the agency. And of course, the underwriters, as I noted, that are employed by the insurance company, they are called, they will actually have underwriter in their title. However, the ones that are employed by the insurance agency, they cannot use underwriter in their title, although they're on the same level as their counterparts in the insurance company. They would have to be, as I noted, a production specialist, a production manager, um, a producer, an agent, not an underwriter. That's very interesting, and, uh, and I know a lot of times in the industry, a lot of terms um, for different classes of licenses tend to get thrown around, and, and it's not always accurate because, as you're saying, they may function as an underwriter, and they may they may describe themselves that way, but they actually can't um, put that in their in their title because they're not employed by the insurance company. So that's good information to note. Um, Lee, I didn't know if you had any experience um, that you wanted to share with us with regard to producers versus underwriters? Well, I think, you know, it's a great question. And, and what I'd say is, um, you know, a lot of agents think they're an underwriter, right? I mean, if you would ask them, they'd say, yeah, I underwrite, right? I make decisions. I make risk decisions. And, and quite honestly, they don't. They might decline a risk, and we'll get into that a little later. In other words, a company will say, I do not want to write this type of risk. It's not within my risk appetite. And the agents know that. A good agent will say, company ABC doesn't like this type of risk. And so they'll say to a particular client, sorry, I can't place you with ABC company because they don't, they don't have this risk appetite. They will not write this home on the coast, for example. Um, but, you know, again, those, those um, agents do consider themselves, I think if you ask them, an underwriter. And that's where it gets a little dangerous is, you know, um, when they kind of communicate and say, hey, yeah, I'm an underwriter for ABC company, when in fact, they're really uh, a producer that maybe has some field underwriting uh, responsibilities to decline risks, to refer them. And I think of life insurance as a good example where uh, if you're, and again, this is a simple example, if you're a female, age 35, and live in this zip code, the cost per thousand of life insurance up to the first hundred thousand is X, and the agent can bind that coverage. If they want a million dollars of coverage, 
that same individual at same risk might have to be referred to a home office underwriter to make the decision of whether or not that's an insurable risk. And so, again, that kind of explains a little bit, I think, around what an agent might do from an underwriting perspective or when they have to refer. So back to you, Aaron. Thanks, Lee. Um, so the next topic that we have to go over is automation versus human evaluation. Um, and we also want to talk in this section about declining a risk and then uh, new business versus renewal and some of the differences that um, go along with that. So Lee, I'll actually turn it back over to you. Well, thank you. And, and I'll kind of break them into those three sections, right? So let's start with automation versus human evaluation. And so, you know, automation has come a long way. And automation, I think of automation in, in, in two subcomponents. One is the internet. You know, you, any of you that are listening to this can go out on the internet and quote coverage. You can go out on auto and get a quote, homeowners and get a quote. You got to put in a lot of information. You might have to put your social security number in, date of birth, property address, answer a bunch of questions. And, you, you know, within, you know, 30 seconds or so, you'll get a quote. Right. And, you know, auto will do that. Life insurance, a lot of coverages. To me, that's automation, right? That That's the front end field uh, underwriting process. And then there's automation at the insurance company where uh, that data comes through. You don't get an instant answer. It comes through. It goes through the computer at the insurance company and it may decide to quote you or decline you or depending on the characteristics of a particular risk it might kick it out to an actual human underwriter to um, take a look at and reevaluate the answers to maybe some questions or the facts of a particular um, property or individual. And you have to remember underwriters, they don't, you know, when we talk about the art of underwriting, there's a lot of databases out there that has information about you as an individual, about the house you live in, the car you drive. If you pick it, Somebody knows about it and captures the consumer database, your credit. Now, some states, and Dominic will probably get into this, allows you to do use credit. Some states, depending on line of business, doesn't allow you to use credit, right, your credit score. Um, but there's a lot of databases out there that has, you know, clue, you know, about a property, how many losses it has. It is, is it in a flood zone? And all that data goes into a system sometimes. And that decision, that automated system will make a decision as to whether this is an insurable risk. And if it is, what the price will be. And that's all programmed, no human interaction. And then sometimes that gets kicked out to, to an actual human underwriter to take a look at that risk. The other thing I'll say on automation versus um, human intervention, the more complex the risk, the more likely there'll be some human that has to look at it. Multi-million dollar property. So a, a small home uh, in a suburb might not have to be looked at, but a 50 apartment apartment building in downtown LA is going to go to an underwriter. They're going to want to look at a lot of the data and the information around it. So the more complex the risk is, the more likely there'll be some type of human human interaction, some kind of human evaluation. Again, gets back to that art of uh, underwriting. I'll jump over to declining a risk, right? And and this this is an area where nobody likes to be declined. Uh, and and whether it's again, I'll go back to the banking, applying for a credit card, applying for a loan. You know, I know when I was younger, getting a declination wasn't necessarily a surprise. Um, as I got older, you know, it, it changes, and and it's no different uh, when you're looking to apply for insurance. Some risks are just uninsurable um, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, and I'll pick on auto. You know, you got a driver that maybe had three or four DUIs, right? Just 
has an issue that they need to deal with and, and really isn't a safe driver. Most insurance companies, most insurance companies don't want to take on that risk. You can't price for that risk. You just, the likelihood of a loss is pretty well defined. And so it's hard to set what I call known claimants. It's hard to really set a price for a known claimant. It's something that's going to happen. And so that that really gets into those declinations. And declinations are heavily regulated. Some lines of business you can't decline. It depends, again, on the state. And, and again, it's important that the underwriter has the tools available to him or her to make those decisions. Can I decline this risk, not decline this risk? Uh, is the agent the one that's going to have to decline the risk? If I do decline the risk, what type of information do I need to provide to the individual about that declination? Uh, do, if I used a third-party consumer database like a Clue report or a credit score, do I have to give that individual the right to get that report that I relied upon in order to understand what it is or why uh, we made the decision we made not to not to write that risk? But uh, unfortunately, in this business, declinations happen. Uh, and, and quite honestly, insurance companies want to write risk. They make money on writing risk. They make no money on declining risk. So it's not like uh, there's this incentive for an insurance company to decline risks. Uh, really, the goal of the insurance company, it's a law of large numbers, which is they want to insure a multitude of risks because a su small subset of that risk are going to have loss. And, and, and so by having a bigger pool, the subset that will have the losses will be offset by that group within that uh, pool that hasn't had losses. And really, it's, it gets into that whole underwriting is a key to that. And then new business versus renewal. Again, complexity of the rules differ. How you look at a risk is different. Um, there's such a thing called a new business penalty um, when you think about uh, being an underwriter. And, and what that new business penalty means is it, when it's a new piece of business, you don't have, you know, you feel like you have a lot of information about that risk. And you really don't. You, you might have a lot, but you don't have everything the incumbent carrier, the carrier that currently is on that risk, has. And so uh, you're always taking more risk on a new piece of business than you are on a renewal. On a renewal piece of business, you know more about that case, how it's run, whether it's a, a group or an individual. Um, you have more data and, and data is king in the underwriting business. The more data you have on a risk, the better you are at being able to price it. And so the rules are, you know, again, the rules are different. So if, uh, you know, again, it depends on the line of business, but the states put a lot more um, onus on a renewal than it does new business. So if you you know if you're going to non-renew a piece of business, the states want to make sure that you're not leaving the your current insured left hanging, right? So there's time frames and all kinds of other regulatory matters that the underwriter needs to be aware of to say if I'm going to non-renew this homeowner's policy, I need to give 60 days advance notice, and I have to tell them why I'm non-renewing that. Versus new business, it's more of, hey, we're just declining you. In other words, there's not as much obligation to that individual or that risk that you have when it's your existing uh, piece of business. And, and again, the states heavily regulate how you look at renewals, how, um, how much in advance of the renewal date you have to send the renewal out so that if you're out at double the rate, they have the opportunity to go out and shop it in the market through their producer. So that if you're charging $200 for a risk that you used to charge 100 and you might have a legitimate risk reason to do that, that that risk has the opportunity to go out and shop it. So uh, I'll leave it there and hand it back to you, Aaron.
Great, thanks, Lee. And I think you you hit um, on a good point there, where the insurance departments, their goal in creating all these rules is to protect the insured. Um, so, Dominic, I didn't know if you wanted to add anything to this this subject. Yeah, the other thing I want to add is, I mean, I think Lee's really covered it. Um, automation doesn't have to be this very fancy um, online system as well. A lot of insurance companies will use a simple Excel spreadsheet macro, which has been created by the actuaries um, in order to plug in information and then provide a at least an estimate quote before the actual human underwriting takes place. So. Um, so the automation can be as simple as a spreadsheet all the way to, as Lee explained, um, an online system where they'll actually give you a quote there and then. Interesting, yeah. And and also it was discussed in this section, um, which I think is important and leads us into um, our next topic, is that each state's different and it's really important to um, know the rules and regulations of each state because they are uh, they are different. Um, and um, you know, the, the insurance companies are responsible to know that. So the, as I said, the next subject will be beyond, beyond the underwriting. What are the underwriting requirements um, as far as regulatory um, and other things that are required prior to and after uh, placing the risk? Um, so Dominic, I'll, I'll let you, you know, take that one. Absolutely, thanks Aaron. Um, yeah, so beyond the underwriting, um, what are the actual requirements? You've received a risk, it's on your desk, you're in the process of looking at the risk. Okay, you know, is this a risk that, that you want to accept? Um, or as Lee noted, is this just a risk that, that your company does not want to handle? You're, um, you've considered, yep, okay, this is a risk that I want to, you know, I want to quote, what are the next steps involved? Um, we've already uh, touched on the licensing uh, section of it if you're actually working for an agency. However, um, if you're working for an insurance company, the next question that has to come to your mind is, all right, what are the, what are the regulatory steps that I have to follow in order to, to bind this risk? So number one, am I going to place it in the admitted, which is the license market, or am I going to place it in the surplus lines market? Because I, there's very little chance I can actually get such a complex, complex risk in the um, admitted market. So let's go down the admitted market uh, path first. Um, every insurance company that wants to write business as a licensed insurance company in a state would actually have to have their forms and rates pre-approved by the state which they're writing in. So let's take auto, for example. Um, an insurance company wants to write auto in the state of New York. They would actually have to get a set of uh, forms in place. Now, all the forms, which would include, obviously, the declaration page, any endorsements, um, any other attachments that they actually wish to put on there, they'd actually have to get a set of forms together and they would have to submit those forms to the Department of Insurance for review and approval. And on top of that, they would actually have to get their rating structure um, together and they would have to submit the rate, the rating structure to the Department of Insurance. Uh, in this case, we're using New York to the Department of Financial Services in New York. They'd have to actually get their forms and their rates in there, the Department of Financial Services would then actually look at the forms and um, either request changes or approve them and say to the insurance company, okay, this is the set of forms which you have to use whenever you're writing a, an auto risk in the state of New York. And again, they will do the same thing. They will look at the rates and they will say, okay, you wanna charge XYZ rates. Um, as Lee pointed out, someone with a DUI is obviously, if they've had only a couple of DUIs, 
their rates are going to be higher, you would uh, you would actually have to stipulate why the rates are higher, and the Department of Insurance, uh, the Department of Financial Services in New York, is going to come back and say, "All right, please provide me the justification. How did you come up with these rates?" Once you've gone through that, the Department of Insurance will uh, then obviously approve the forms and the rates. So now this insurance company has a set of forms, a set of rates approved uh, for that risk for, for the auto risk in New York. You as an underwriter now, you have this auto risk in front of you. You can only use those forms and those rates which have been approved. You cannot deviate from the forms. You cannot deviate from the rates. If you deviate from the forms, um, then you would actually be out of compliance. And during a market con conduct exam, the, the insurance company would obviously, uh, that'll be marked against the insurance company as using using the forms which have not been pre-approved. And that's the same with the rates. You actually have to follow the rates that have been filed, the rating structure that have been filed and approved by the Department of Insurance in order to quote that risk. So, um, and again, if you want to make changes, unfortunately, you turn around after a few years, you say, you turn around and say, okay, these, these forms are just not working for us anymore. You can't just simply get a new set. You effectively have to file an, an amendment to your original set. So you've either got to file an entirely new filing with the Department of Insurance, or you've got to turn around and say to the Department of Insurance, we're going to remove endorsement one, two, three, four, and we're going to replace them with five, six, seven, eight. And again, you have to go through the approval process. Similar process is followed when it comes to the actual rating. And then um, you get a very complex risk, uh, something which you know you can't write in the admitted market. You would put it in the surplus lines market, the excess and surplus lines market in the United States. Now, unlike the admitted market, the excess and surplus lines market is very much deregulated. So there are no requirements to have the forms um, approved and there's no requirements to actually have the rates approved. So you've got complete form freedom, you've got complete rate freedom. However, you can't just simply say, well, yeah, you know what? I don't want to write this in the admitted form because um, I want to change this, this, and this. I'm going to put it on, on the excess and surplus lines because I want to just put it all together the way I want to do it. Unfortunately, it's not that simple either. In order to write in the non-admitted uh, excess and surplus lines market in the United States, you would have to get three declinations from an admitted carriers, from admitted carriers to say that, no, this risk is too big for me to write. And you actually have to keep a record of that. So the agent, the broker that's actually given you the risk, that submitted the risk would have to say to you, here, uh, I've called three carriers, carrier A, carrier B, carrier C. I spoke to this person at each carrier. And they have come back and said, "Yep, no, we we decline this risk because it's not within our it, it's not within our purview to write it. It's not within our appetite. We're going to decline it. Only then can you write it in the excess and surplus lines market. Uh, but once again, that would be a different insurance company because an admitted insurance company is licensed in all in all states. It cannot be a surplus lines company in the same state." So if you've got an admitted uh, company that's licensed in the state of New York, it also cannot be a surplus lines company in the state of New York. You would actually have to have a second. Um, you'd have to have a second insurance company that is that is act, um, recognized in, in that state as a surplus lines company as well. And once again, um, since we're talking on on the surplus lines insurance, uh, if you write a risk on surplus. Uh, on the surplus lines insurance market, there are what's called excess and surplus lines taxes and fees that have to be paid 
by the broker that by the surplus lines broker that has actually uh, procured the risk and submitted the risk for you. You as a carrier, as the underwriter for the carrier, need to make sure that you have communicated this to the broker and said, okay, you are aware that there are taxes and fees that have to be paid to the state of New York through the Excess and Surplus Lines Association. Um, and uh, you basically put that on there and you, when you um, send send the quote back out, you would actually have to put a note on the quote saying, uh, broker is, is hereby responsible for all surplus lines, taxes and fees. So those are the some of the small issues that you have to consider when you're binding a risk. Um, that's why um, when you, you know, you got the risk, as I said, just to recap, you've got the risk. You've decided, yep, this is a risk I want to write. I'm going to start underwriting it. You got to think, all right, now that I'm going to start underwriting it, what are the limitations? What are the requirements do I actually have? What do I need to follow in order to write this risk correctly uh, within the regulations? Otherwise, the state may come knocking on your door saying, all right, let me look at all the policies you've written in the state of New York for the 2019 year and any policy which is not written within the regulations. Um, uh, the state will actually note that and the company could get fined. They could have their license suspended. There's a whole slew of actions that the Department of Insurance can actually um, place on the company if uh, one, two or more risks are actually written out of compliance. Lee, did you want to add anything to that that section? Uh, all I'd say is, you know, the, the one thing I would, you know, when Dominic was speaking, the one thing I thought about is, insurance is the business of discrimination. That's what we do. We discriminate, right? And we charge higher rates for risks based on certain criteria that that basically pose a higher risk to the insurance company. The question is, and underwriters are very key in this, is it fair discrimination or unfair discrimination? And so it's important that, you know, an insurance company, their underwriters, their actuaries, all that they build around the selection, declination, and pricing of risks that it's fair discrimination. So I'll just leave it at that. Thanks, Leo. That's a, that's a really good point. Um, so that is actually our last topic for today's podcast. I'm going to let our speakers uh, say some closing remarks. Um, so I'll, I'll start it with Lee. I'll start with you. Yeah, well, thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Dominic. This has been great. Uh, what I'll say is uh, for those folks that are thinking about, you know, maybe taking up an insurance career, I started, like I said, 36 years ago in the compliance area. Um, and the one thing that you learn in the compliance area is you need to become expert of all things that happen at an insurance company, whether it's marketing, sales, underwriting, claims, actuarial. You know, the compliance department is responsible to understand what functions they perform and, and the regulations that surround those functions. And you know, by working in the compliance organization, I was able to identify an area uh, that I enjoyed. And you know, fast forward 36 years later, I'm running a business. Um, and you know, I don't think I would have gotten here if I hadn't started uh, where I did and learned this business from the ground up. But I want to thank everybody. This is you know, um, insurance is is is. I'll say I've been doing this for a lot of years. It's recession proof. Uh, it, it's something that everybody needs. It's, it's not something that's going to go away. Insurance is, is something we all need and will always need. Um, and, and it's been very, very good to me. So thank you, Aaron. Thanks, Lee. Yeah, that's a good point about job security. Uh, insurance is something that, as you said, is not going to go away. So um, Dominic, I'll open it to you for any closing remarks you might have. 
Yep, um, Aaron, thank you very much. And again, Lee, thank you very much as well. Um, this has been a great, great experience on my side as well. Um, I think just reiterating what Lee said, uh, if you're thinking about getting into the insurance industry, it is very much um, something which someone will will always need. Um, unlikely, I actually did a little bit backwards. I started in the underwriting side of um, side of play on the um, on the personal line side, and then I actually moved into the compliance side of it as well. So I moved. I started on the compliance side on the excess and surplus line side. Then I moved to the life insurance, and then the regular property casualty compliance. Um, and again, reiterating what Lee said, um, being in compliance, you actually do have to know every single aspect of it, not just the underwriting. Obviously, you need to know the claims of it. You need to know the investment side of it. So there are a lot of opportunities in the insurance industry um, for you to actually look into. And again, just because you start on, on one part of it in the underwriting, for example, there's nothing stopping you from moving to um, another part like a compliance, like an investment in in, in the insurance industry. So it, it's one of those industries where you can actually move across very, very easily. And you can always move back if you wish to as well. Um, and it's definitely a good career, definitely recession-proof because we'll always need insurance regardless of what happens to the economy, regardless of who's in, who's in power or whatnot. Insurance will always be there for everybody. Great. Thanks, Dominic. It sounds like you took quite a journey, um, but it seems like it's treated you well, so I'm happy to hear that. Uh, so I just wanted to conclude today's podcast by, uh, again, thanking Dominic and Lee for uh, sharing their wisdom with us today. Uh, I truly appreciate it. I know I learned some new things, um, and I also want to thank the AICP for uh, coordinating this podcast series, and we hope you join us for the next one. Thank you.